dark, solitary, lost. Those were the first thoughts I remember having about Harker when I first moved there. I had been ejected from New Orleans a few months before when my father had made it very apparent he knew where I was and sent me running for my life again. That was before I learned my brother had died and the family business was collapsing. Time to go back, start my life. It was an easy choice, really. I would go back to Georgia, find a spot closer to the family property, and negotiate the terms of my return. Yes, I would go home, even take over the family business, but I wouldn't be trapped again. That's what I told myself. I rented a little cabin outside of the small town of Harker, and my dad and I began writing back and forth, exchanging letters through a P.O. box. I wasn't ready for anything more, but every letter brought my father and I closer to an agreement. But I never told him where I was. He knew I was back in Georgia, but had no idea I was one town over. If he were to walk through the family fields and make the sweaty miles-long walk through Corpsewood forests, he would have been at my front door. I was still protected, but in the loosest sense of the word. The negotiations didn't always go well, and the weeks turned to months. Once a week, I would leave my cabin southeast of Harker, drop the most recent outgoing letter at the post office, and head to the library to distract myself. That was always the worst day of the week. My brain would spend the day bullying me, telling me that I was insane to even be writing to my dad, let alone moving back to the family property. I still wonder what the fuck got into me to even think of going back after being gone so long, but I never really felt free. And grief makes a person do weird things. I'd spend hours fighting images from childhood that had been seared into my formative memories. All the days I was aimless and desperate, not seeing or speaking to a single soul. Because that's what I remember most from those days. Not the bodies or crematorium I was never allowed to see, just loneliness. I'd wake up, load my old backpack with whatever snacks I could find in the mostly empty kitchen, and spend my days exploring the unincorporated land and properties. Most of the family fields were dotted with small buildings that were unburdened with city codes and ordinances. Some still stood strong, but most had leaks or holes that were completely collapsed. Some of them had the smell of decay, and now they remind me of the New Orleans cemeteries, the cities of the dead, which is arguably a dark comparison when put in the current context. They had all been built for different purposes, some no more than boxes for storage, while others had old electricity, and they were all disintegrating at different rates. But there's a road that leads from the family house all the way to the end of the field and the main road, and I would have to make the decision, almost daily. If I turned left, I would find a ghost town, but if I turned right and walked for what felt like hours, I would eventually hit a gas station, the first real sign of civilization. And maybe, then, I could leave. You said you explored the town, so why did you never turn right? What kept you there? I did, the day my dad found David. I didn't stop, didn't bring anything with me, didn't even look back except once to see my dad dragging David into the house as he yelled, pleaded for me to run faster and not come back. 
I reached the end of the road, went right, and hitched a ride. What David did has always felt like a sacrifice I'll never be able to pay back. And even though I returned his remains, he'll always be alive to me. It's a Schrodinger's cat in my life. It's just... What? Your story is so crazy. Even after watching the trial, it's almost unbelievable. It can't be easy to live inside your head with all that. What's it like? Better than being back there. Except when my brain takes me back there, of course, but then I remind myself I'm not there. I'm here. I'm out. I'm alive. And I'm free. Which is more than I ever thought possible. More than I thought I deserved. Maybe more than I do deserve. It's... it's definitely more than I deserve. The nightmares woke me up, like they always do. This time, I had fallen asleep on the couch. The nightmare was the same as always, just as terrifying. Most of the time, it featured things I'd seen and experienced in person. But in recent months, there had been some additions to the flashing images and memories in my head I didn't recognize from my real life. The first thing I noticed after waking up was the road noise outside. Cars were such an empty, cold sound compared to the trains and wind and trees in my dreams. It wasn't that I disliked living in the city now. I had loved my years in New York, but I couldn't help compare everything to how it had felt to live back in Harker. Because if I really thought about it, I had been happy. Maybe not happy, but content at least. 
I had had Dora, then John and Lawrence, and was even on speaking terms with Morgan again. Hell, Franklin was annoying, but even he'd stopped shunning me completely. The soft light coming through the blinds was lulling me to sleep once again when a key in the front door sent my eyes flying open. Intellectually, I knew it was just Morgan coming to drop off my mail, given her text a few hours ago. But there was always a part of me expecting the worst. An intruder, or another cop, or lawyer, or journalist that had tracked me down. Anything to justify my heart rate accelerating. Morgan pushed through the door and my eyes flew shut in fond relaxation. I mentally mapped her movements across the living room and into the kitchen by the jingle of the morgue keys from her belt loop. As far as anyone else was concerned, I wasn't mid-panic attack. I was peacefully, half asleep in the sun, pulling through the blinds. We've got to figure out a special knock or something so I know when it's you or it's Henry. (laughs) Isn't it easier for you to just move out? Maybe for Henry. Morgan made her way to the little bright kitchen filled with plants and threw down the stack of mail. She snuck looks at me from the corner of her eye while I watched through slits, still faking my zen. Maybe if I pretended enough, it would actually happen. Like a positive, self-fulfilling prophecy. Morgan leaned against the plastic countertop while saying nothing and plastered a faux look of pleasantness across her face. A gesture I knew meant that she had an uncomfortable topic to breach and was trying to figure out an in. Morgan, spill it. What do you mean? Oh, she was good. If I hadn't grown up with Morgan, I just might have believed her. I opened my eyes just enough to glare at her. She struggled to tuck her hair behind her ear, yet another sure sign of nerves. Or guilt. Both emotions I was all too familiar with. I know there's something on your mind, so spill it. Look, it's not a big deal, so don't freak out, but... John's coming home. Pens and books went flying off my lap as I unintentionally shot up to a seated position, nearly tumbling off the couch. My pre-nap glass of water knocked over and shattered as my knees slammed into the coffee table. Back. Huh? Back. He's coming back. John doesn't have a home, as he so thoughtfully reminded me, time and time again. Well, he's been up in wherever so long. He's probably got a point. Boston. Really? Franklin says he's flying in from New York. So John had left Boston and hadn't said a word. I tried to ignore the sting. So uh, what does this have to do with me? Nothing, really. I am just forwarding the message. It could be a warning so you can avoid him or If you're up for it, you could go with Franklin to pick him up from the airport later. I stopped picking up the broken glass and untangling myself from my laptop charger to throw Morgan a scathing look. Maybe falling asleep mid-study hadn't been a great idea. Hell, Franklin's involved now? Absolutely not. I will be staying right here for the rest of the night. Thank you. Morgan threw down the magazine she'd been fidgeting with before briskly heading back for the door. Had I thanked her for dropping off my mail? Oh god, I really could be the worst. You should probably see him soon, though. Who? Franklin? He knows where to find me. 
John didn't leave to get away from you, Marjorie, despite what you think. Don't punish the poor guy for no good reason. Morgan was a little annoyed, so it seemed. Not enough to yell or really show up beyond the tenseness in her shoulders and at the corner of her mouth, but her annoyance at my avoidance tactics was clear. And as much as I hate to admit it, she was right. John hadn't done anything to deserve the silent treatment. He hadn't told me off when I'd suggested leaving Georgia together or held the blame against me for tracking him down and imploding his plans. But he had left me behind. He hadn't called, he hadn't written, and that stung more than a little. By Monday morning, two days after being invited to Lawrence's crime scene, I found myself standing in the spare room of his apartment, a room I'd had described to me over a thread of panic texts, back when Dory suspected Lawrence of more than just being a pompous ass. It felt like a lifetime ago. I tucked the thickest sweater I owned closer to my body, but it did nothing to combat the March cold snap leaking through Lawrence's old windows. So Lawrence is in the kitchen taking a call and told me to wait in his office, and it's not exactly what Dory described, but... I'm kind of amazed how much stuff he's been able to pack in such a small space. I can tell everything is organized and intentional. There's a desk kind of in the center of the room and one, two, three filing cabinets, like Dory mentioned before. It's cleaner than I expected though. There's also these huge stacks of additional files sitting in piles on every other surface, even the floor, but only two on the desk. Judging by the number of coffee stains, I'd say Lawrence tidied up before I came over. The files on the desk are labeled Cohen-Sophia, and the other one just says M.M. No idea what that means. Last but not least, the entire wall behind the desk is covered in corkboard pieces, but not very much tacked up right now, unlike when Jory was here, which makes me think he cleared it before I got here. Because I did. Because it's none of your business. Lawrence entered the room holding two mugs, and the smell of coffee wafted in after him. I took one, and he sat the other on top of a collection of coffee stains on the desk, confirming my suspicion. I could tell by the dampness of his dark hair and the bags under his eyes that he'd been up a while, and most likely hadn't slept at all. There's a certain exhaustion that radiates off anyone freshly showered at two in the afternoon. I watched as he continued to fidget by distractedly rolling the sleeves of his Henley. So he was nervous about something. Interesting. Those aren't important. He scooped up both files on the desk, threw them in one of the metal filing drawers, and locked it tight with a small silver key he quickly tucked back into his front jean pocket. This, however... Lawrence produced a thin manila folder labeled key from the neighboring file cabinet. The files he'd locked away had been over two inches thick, while this one didn't appear to have anything in it at all. Lawrence ignored my obvious confusion and slipped a USB drive the size of my thumbnail out of the manila folder. It was the smallest one I had ever seen. All physical documents for federal and state gigs stay at the precinct, but I have a pretty strict system, as you can tell. Lawrence stepped between me and the desk and popped the USB drive into the computer. I watched intently as he opened a screen with nothing but a search bar and punched in some numbers before an unending carousel of gory pictures and documents popped up. 
My hand flew to my mouth instinctively, and I immediately regretted the show of weakness. But Lawrence ignored this too, just leaning back in his chair to sip his coffee comfortably. I've decided there are actually two specific things I need your help with, but everything else will be kept off limits. That's not your call. It is when I'm the primary, and the first contracted primary on a ritualistic homicide in APD history. So I'm not fucking around this time. I didn't think it would be productive to point out that ritual killings weren't recognized by the justice system until the 80s, and there probably hadn't been very many in Atlanta since. Have you spoken to the victim's parents or family yet? Do you know why they specifically asked for you on the scene? I know I performed a cleansing at their house two months ago. Their son had visited and had apparently brought a bad energy with him. I wasn't surprised they called me after he was murdered given the circumstances, so I didn't ask many more questions. It didn't make a lot of sense to me, but let me enlighten you. I finally spoke to Mr. and Mrs. Williams the night after the murder. I got a lot of the standard answer, of course. A lot of our son was perfect and loved by everyone stuff. Typical. But after some digging, Mr. Williams let it slip that Kevin had been complaining about the apartment having problems. Not just the apartment. He claimed whatever was off was following him. To work, the grocery store, nights out, everywhere. Which explains why they had you spring clean the place once he left. Yeah, they did imply they were worried he'd left something behind. Which is bullshit, of course. Agree to disagree. But that doesn't mean he wasn't being followed by someone. On top of that, I've got three whole other case files full of macabre puzzles for you to crack. Okay, just because I'm a medium doesn't mean I can translate all of these. There's, like, three different practices represented in this picture alone. I tried not to wince as I gestured to the large computer monitor paused on a picture of three separate symbols traced with bloody fingers over a doorway. Then I guess I win our bet already. That was easy. Wait a second. Don't get up just yet. I may not know everything, but I do know almost everybody. I have a friend we can talk to at the University of Georgia, if you'll just trust me. I'm not your burden, Lawrence. I'm a goddamn resource. I was finally back in Georgia. Franklin had picked me up hours ago, but gridlock outside the city had made getting to Harker a long haul. We were two exits away now, flying up the highway in perfect silence. Franklin. Jory had told me that they didn't see eye to eye. Franklin wasn't a bad guy, though. I had known that from the beginning. He just liked things simple. And Jory was anything but simple. I, I understood why they didn't get along. Jory had the chaotic energy of a runaway shopping cart through a fruit stand compared to Franklin's straightforward demeanor. Jory. I had lost track of the months, and I knew, not so deep down, that I'd been gone too long. Knew it in my bones. You look worried. Are you okay? I've been gone too long. Maybe. How long did you tell everyone you'd be up in? In Boston. I didn't, just said I'd be back soon. And it's not everyone I'm worried about. Franklin made a pain face before deciding the conversation was over and lapsing back into silence. Even he agreed six months was longer than be back soon promised. Yeah, I said I would be back soon, but one thing had led to another and eventually time had slipped past me. It had been over six months. 
Six long months flew through my fingers, liquid and refreshing as water. One minute I'd arrived in Boston to meet David's family, all of us making pained efforts to not mention the trial that had recently made my family infamous, avoiding questions of why I, of all people, had their estranged son, which was made more painful by the knowledge that there was no way to know for sure if the remains were, in fact, David. All signs pointed to yes, all assumptions safely comfortably made with anecdotal evidence, but that's the price you pay for setting a body aflame at 1800 degrees Fahrenheit, then putting them in a blender. No more DNA. No more remnants of that person beyond a gray powder loaded with hopes of peace and comfort. Fire is cleansing, it's also destructive. I had helped them plan the memorial service for three weeks, I saw the dysfunction that David had ran away from, I made calls for family-sized snack platters, I met with the pastor, and at the end of it all, I couldn't justify doing more than sneaking into the back of the service. The smell of roses was suffocating, and I knew I'd crack if pressed with questions by extended family of who I was and why I was there. So I respectfully stood in the back, invisible to most. Next thing I knew, I was exploring abandoned cities in the Pine Barrens, and over six months was gone. The days had slipped past me in a blur of trains and forests and late nights in diners across from strangers. Then, I found my urgency. My consciousness crash-landed with reality, and I immediately packed and headed for the closest city to fly out. I had to go back to Georgia. Home was waiting. So, what's she been up to? Jory, I mean. Still living with Henry, although they're both looking forward to not being under the same roof. Why? Well, you know them. Act and fight like brother and sister. Henry got used to challenging Jory in middle school, and they've been that way ever since. Love each other to death, but risk stabbing each other if left alone for too long. They can't help it. Middle school? Henry's three years older, so I think that's when he started to notice Jillian and Gordon ignoring Jory. They'd never been super affectionate, but apparently she started acting up or something. According to Jillian and Gordon, she'd been pretty tame up until then, but then the sleep problem started, and her attitude went with it. Henry says Jory was still trying to make her parents happy, but once the sleepwalking started, they gave up. Started leaving her at home whenever they went out, never had her around except at church on Sundays. But Jory was always on edge at that point, always exhausted and eventually didn't want to go to church either. Said it scared her at one point. No shit. Gordon called my dad, who's also a piece of shit, and asked him if he believed possession could be the cause of Joy's wild behaviors. I mean, she would walk through the halls half asleep, screaming bloody murder, and that was on a good night. My old man had some wild beliefs, but even he was taken back by that. I guess I always thought about demonic possession as a Catholic thing, but apparently Jillian and Gordon had met with Pastor Shaw, and he'd thrown the idea out there. My dad talked him out of it, and that's when they started taking a true hands-off parenting approach. Morgan, Henry, Dora, me. All of us kind of adopted Jory after that. She was younger, practically feral, but we took her everywhere. We'd go skateboard behind the funeral home and eat whatever snacks Morgan's dad had stocked in the cadaver fridge. Or hide out in the alleyways behind Bean and Brew with a frappe, or sit at the Iron Gate and threaten to push each other onto the cemetery grounds. I remember the summer Dora got her first EMF meter and we spent months staring at the flashing lights while Dora asked questions to the spirits the parents weren't too happy about that one, but at that point, we didn't care. 
Franklin went quiet again, immediately putting his guard up like he hadn't meant to keep going, to tell that much, that honestly, about their childhood. Maybe he didn't think it was his business talking about Jory, but there was a tinge of guilt in his eyes that told me there was another reason. You guys sound like you were close. We were kids. Street rats. We were safer and less bored in numbers. Caused more chaos that way, too. But yeah, I guess we were kind of close. What happened? Franklin flipped on the windshield wipers as we took the exit that would eventually lead us to Harker, and his eyes shuddered. Tentative sentimentality was replaced with a simmering anger I hadn't seen before. The red of the exit stoplight blurred behind the growing rain, reflecting color into the dim car. Jory fucking lied. That's what happened. Once, when living in New York, I attended a guided meditation workshop. And although I didn't find inner peace over the two days of sitting with my eyes closed, I did discover something. Heaven. At one point, one of the instructors asked us to picture our version of heaven. And although I'm sure some people would picture clouds or an ethereal field, I pictured the corner of the coffee shop. The shop itself was fine. The old Harker train station turned coffee shop was drafty and dusty, stuffed to the brim with scuffed secondhand furniture. But in the corner, tucked between a small log-burning fireplace and the old swirly window glass, were two small armchairs with a low-lying circular table between them. I couldn't count how many times I'd sat in one of those chairs, both alone or with someone across from me. I don't think many people plan to be pining away in their high school coffee shop as an adult. But if I was learning anything, it's that getting away doesn't always mean growth. Sometimes going back to your roots is the only way to move forward. I had been right to come back, and I had been wrong to leave again. I sat and watched the rain through the old glass window for two hours, not picking up my phone, not interacting with anyone beyond the barista behind the counter, who knew my order of black coffee and didn't require more than a nod and a half smile. Then he arrived. John meandered through the double doors like a specter carried on the wind. And apart from his grown-out courtroom haircut, it was like no time passed at all. Water fell from his tan rain jacket. He brushed his damp onyx hair from his face while looking around. For me. There was a clarity to his eyes I'd only seen in him a few times when he spotted me. He still carried his backpack, complete with carry-on tag, which meant he hadn't even gone home before coming here. Morgan was right. He didn't deserve to be punished. But that didn't mean I was ready to forgive. I'll be honest. I was thrilled to get your text, Bradford. Yeah? And what about all the other ones? I scolded myself as I watched the line hit. John cringed as he made himself at home in the chair across from me and avoided eye contact. My tongue had gotten me into trouble more times than I could count. Had I learned nothing from it? I scolded myself again. I guess I deserve that, don't I? Look, No, I... you don't. I'm just... It doesn't matter. I just wish you'd called or responded or written. The rain continued to fall. A leak at the back of the shop dripped rhythmically. 
John's face reddened slightly as he bit back whatever bit of honesty had almost slipped. A drop of rain fell from a dark curl, and he changed the subject instead. This place kind of reminds me of where I worked in New Orleans. A little hole in the wall, so this is nice. Do you ever miss it? New Orleans, I mean. Sometimes, yeah. It wasn't my home or anything, but my life there was better than it had been other places. I made friends there too, people that understood me. It was nice to be somewhere that appreciated the gray of life. Not good or bad, but neutral. It's hard to find places that appreciate both the dark and the light and the people that exist in between. Sometimes bad choices are necessary for better outcomes. It's a balance. Sounds like a slippery slope. Maybe. You tell me. What? No, I'm definitely not like that. Good. All the way. Just with some stupidity. Are you? I wanted to hit him. Throttle him over the coffee bar. The audacity it took to break off communication with someone only to reappear six months later to tell them that they're a bad person? Unbelievable. You're not a bad person. Damn him and his mind reading. But I don't think you're completely good either. I had no interest in confirming or denying his armchair analysis. I just folded my arms against the cool March draft and narrowed my eyes. It seemed we were back to our old games, but this time, I would win. What have you done that makes you so gray? <laughs> A lot, but that's unimportant. There's that classic John honesty. All right, you want honesty? There were points over the last six months I wasn't sure if I'd be coming back here at all. But I have some unfinished business to take care of, and it was time to come home. And believe it or not, I'm already glad I did. My anger melted into something softer, more pliable, and I couldn't help the small smile that gave it away. Well, welcome home then. John and I talked for hours, long past the sun going down. We avoided discussions of his family, my family, or the black marks we carried. So that left just about everything else. When the coffee shop closed, we thanked the barista and set off wandering the old streets of Harker. I ignored the scathing glances thrown at us from other Harker pedestrians. The two people that symbolized the end of peace in Harker were walking and laughing together, so I really didn't hold it against them. But I couldn't take it back. I couldn't undo the hurt people had caused John and myself and how we cleaned it up, so just for tonight, I wouldn't hold it against myself either. When we finally parted ways at 9 p.m., I had a lot to consider. I got into my car and drove through the mostly abandoned side streets of the city, stopping by the cemetery to refill the kibble that's often left out for resident cemetery cats and foxes, and headed back home. I defaulted to the route back to my old cottage and caught myself turning back onto Main Street, passing Oakland House in the process. Lawrence's car pulled into the cobblestone driveway and Dora jumped out of the passenger seat, followed by Lawrence from the driver's side. She was clearly upset. I slowed at a respectable distance and watched as Dora gestured animatedly, speaking quickly and with passion. Lawrence stood with his arms crossed and a steely look in his eyes. And whether purposeful or not, they kept the car between themselves. It seemed safer that way. 
Finally, having gotten the last word in, Dora stormed up the Oakland House front steps, unlocking and then slamming the heavy wooden doors with gusto. I watched as Lawrence laced his fingers behind his head, looked up into the falling rain, took three deep breaths, looked at his phone, and then left. And I felt it. Something moving and changing once again. Maybe I had been angry with myself more than John. Maybe it was time I also came home. That Creepy Podcast is a bi-weekly podcast written and produced by me, Theodora. Special thanks to our fabulous voice actors, Joseph Teagle, Katie Collier, Emily Black, Nathaniel Curtis, Amy Collier, and Ian Collier. Main theme by Theodora and Seth Johnson. Music by Zach Tupper. Audio production and additional scoring by Seth Johnson. And last but not least, visit our website, thatcreepypodcast.com, for links to some awesome merch, playlists inspired by the show, and more. We'll see you next time. Up. We have company. 